We're in the book of Jude. If you've come to learn the Bible, you've come to the right place tonight. Okay, we like learning the Bible here. I can't promise you I'm going to tell you a lot of funny stories or entertain you, but I'll do my best to teach you the Bible. So, we're in Jude. I know there are new people here, and there's other people here who, like me, have short-term memories. We are going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16 tonight. This is like week 7 of our our study through Jude. And so I'll set this up for you for if you're new. I'll get you kind of caught up like uh, what happened last time in Jude. There's a man named Jude. I bet that comes as a big surprise. uh, He's writing this story. He's writing this story sometime between 68 and 70 A.D. Now, this Jude who we're referring to, this is the half-brother of Jesus. And like his other siblings, Jude did not become a believer in Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection. He didn't think he was legit, you might say. So Jude writes the story sometime between 68 and 70 A.D. It's a little story, 25 verses. And of the 25 verses, 19 of them can be found in a parallel form back in 2 Peter. Where Peter uses future tense to describe the impending threat of the spiritual pretenders. Jude uses present tense, which leads many to the conclusion, at least so much as Jude functions and serves and operates as a sequel to 2 Peter. Some might say. So Jude is writing this letter to believers. So believers is his audience. And he is calling upon them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because, he says in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing this letter to believers because there are people at these, this community, apparently, that have crept in unnoticed. They say that they're Christians, but how they act is very different than what they claim. They say they're Christians, but they do a lot of things that you scratch your head and you say, I don't think that's very consistent with what the Bible says. And then we learn and find out that these people are justifying their actions. They're giving lots of different excuses, lots of different reasons why it's okay to do this, this, or this. And uh, as we have learned so far, a lot of it had to do with some type of sexual license or sexual sin. That they're saying, oh no, no, that's okay. It's really not that big of a deal. God understands. Yeah, he's okay. He's okay with that because after all, I'm only coming this far to the line. And I'm not actually going over, okay? So, so it's okay. Or I've only got one foot over the line. And so he, he's okay with that. Or whatever the other dumb excuses they come up with. And so he is writing to these believers, wants them to let you know, hey, this is happening. He, wa- he is unmasking, trying to unmask and point out who these people are because it's not super obvious who they are. They've crept in unnoticed. And there in line sets up for the text today. We'll jump right into verse 14. <clears throat> it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Once again, Jude uses an extra-biblical source, much in the same way that he did back in verse 9. Now, if you've been with us, you may remember that verse 9 presented a rather strange idea. Verse 9, Jude had said, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. <coughs> Interesting, the story. Archangel Michael, having a conversation with Satan over the body of Moses. It's interesting because you want to read in the Bible about the death and burial of Moses, you can read in Deuteronomy chapter 34. What's interestingly omitted from that story is verse 9 of Jude. There's nothing about the archangel and Satan having this discussion. So where does Jude get this information from? Well, he gets it from an extra-biblical, a non-biblical source referred to today as the Assumption of Moses. Is that okay? Can he do that? He can do that. It's okay. Don't panic. What's interesting is, here he does it again in verse 14 and 15. Except he draws it from another extra-biblical source known as the book of one Enoch. He's going to quote, in Jude 14 and 15, he's going to quote from one Enoch. And one Enoch is a pseudopigrapha. That is, it is a pseudonymous writing. It's a writing that's written under a false name. One Enoch is a pseudopigraphical writing. And these writings, especially in Jewish literature, would oftentimes be ascribed to various biblical patriarchs and prophets. And they were usually all composed within 200 years of the birth of Christ. Now, it was widely known that the book was not written by the historical Enoch. That is, the great-grandson of Adam and the great-grandfather of Noah. It's pretty common knowledge that it wasn't written by him. And yet, this historical Enoch was a, quite the interesting guy. The Jews were, really thought he was very interesting, especially the Jews of the Second Temple period. And you can read just in brief about this man, Enoch, in Genesis chapter 5, 23 to 24, as well as Hebrews 11:5. But what made him really interesting, Enoch, the great-grandson of Adam, great-grandfather of Noah, is that he never died. And so <clears throat> he cites from this source... And yet, one of the other surprising elements from this source, this book known as One Enoch, is that One Enoch is not actually considered to be canonical or scriptural by any religious group. Whether we think of, I don't know, Judaism, Roman Catholicism, Greek or Russian Orthodox, or in our case, Protestantism. None of these major religions recognize one Enoch as a scriptural source. And so a lot of us kind of scratch our heads as we're hearing the information that I'm articulating. Like, okay, well, why would he use this source? It seems kind of puzzling at first glance. And yet some of the early church fathers believed that because he did cite one Enoch, that one Enoch should be taken as scriptural. The early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, they thought that one Enoch, because Jude used it, that it should be a part of the canon. And yet there were people on the opposite side who argued that because Jude cited from one Enoch, that Jude shouldn't be part of the Bible. Like Jerome, who is well known for his contributions to the Latin Vulgate. And yet there are still others who try to defend Jude. 
And they say, well, Jude actually was only citing the oral traditions from the historical figure Enoch. And after Jude cited those oral traditions, then this book of one Enoch came and really took what Jude had used and incorporated it into the text. And yet that's a really hard position to defend because it was well known that the book of Enoch was widely in circulation at this time and well known within Jewish circles. So what are we to conclude? Well, I think this is the right conclusion. We conclude, therefore, that Jude quoted from this pseudopigraphical one Enoch and that ultimately he believed that a portion of what he quoted... A portion, that is, 1 Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, that portion actually represented God's truth. The portion that you see in verse 14 and 15, that he believed that that portion was legit. And this doesn't mean, and we should not infer from this by any means, that Jude demanded or thought that the rest of the book of Enoch was authentic, scriptural, or, how do you say, legit. That's, I, don't, I don't want to make sure we read into that. In fact, the book of Enoch has some serious flaws and problems. And I would be amiss not to mention those, since I've been mentioning everything else. There's a man named Bede, B-E-D-E. Apparently that was a cool name to name someone in the 7th century. But he's known as the Venerable Bede, or the Honorable Bede. He was a 7th century English monk theologian, historian, well known for writing the ecclesiastical history of the English people. And he vehemently rejected this book, One Enoch, not just because it was a pseudopigraphical work, but because One Enoch contained teachings that were contrary to apostolic doctrine in the book of James, in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, in 1 John, in 2 John, in 3 John, and in Jude. Which brings many to the point of, okay, what, what were you thinking, Jude? Why would you cite from this source? Well, I think Jude cites from this source, 1 Enoch 1 9, because he considered it to be genuine prophecy. And, and this is a theory, but quite possibly because. The adversaries, the spiritual pretenders who've crept in unnoticed, who are causing all types of trouble, who he's been writing about this whole time, quite possibly because they treasured this work. And he, in a way, was trying to use their own ammunition against him. It's a theory. Now, all that to say is, should I be concerned right now? I mean, is Jude legit? Well, for those of you who've been here the last couple weeks, you know, this isn't, while it's not done frequently... This is known to happen. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17.28 and Titus 1.12, he cites from extra-biblical sources. And just because he does, doesn't mean the whole source that he cites from is scriptural or authentic. This is what we ultimately can say about this source 1 Enoch. Jude simply draws from a part of it, that is 1 Enoch chapter 1 verse 9, because that was the part that he ultimately considered to be true, and yet that's not even the most interesting part. The most interesting part is that when Jude is writing this letter and he's borrowing from this source, he actually alters it ever so slightly. Look at verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes. Behold, the Lord comes. Verse 14. Make sure you guys got eyes on that. 
It was, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes. The interesting thing is when Jude is doing this, this phrase, Lord, this phrase, Lord, was not in any of the original versions. Jude seemingly inserts this word, this term, Lord. It's not in any of the other versions. And it almost, we see this representation of Jude's seemingly Christological interpretation of the judgment that Enoch pronounces upon them. He is speaking of a, the second coming of Christ. And the holy ones of which will accompany him are ultimately his angels coming. Now people come for different reasons, sometimes good reasons, sometimes bad reasons. This is a bad reason. It's bad because in verse 15 it says he's coming. The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to do something. To execute judgment. To execute judgment on all and to convict all. The word convict in the original language it means to expose, to rebuke, to prove guilty. To, and it includes showing someone their error. A lot of people um, that I get a chance to talk to or witness to, when it comes to issues of sin, oftentimes the answer is, well, I'm a pretty good person. Or they, they tend to justify their actions, much like the spiritual pretenders who we've been discussing up to this point. When people come and talk to them, oh, they've got a reason, they've got an explanation for why it's okay that they're doing this thing or that thing, that... Scripture clearly forbids doing. It says he's going to come and convict. He's literally going to come and prove them guilty. To show them their error when he returns. He is coming to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there's two things, and I'm not sure if you see it, but I'll make sure it's clear, that's going on. He's going to convict all the ungodly of all their... Can you say that word? Oh, that was so loud. My ears are ringing. We'll try it one more time. He's going to come to convict all the ungodly of all their... Ungodliness. Right. Or in the English Standard Version, of all their deeds of ungodliness. And then we go on and he says, we skip down, he says, ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the what things? Harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken. So there's two things here. Deeds, all their deeds, and the things spoken against them. The things that they've done and the things that they've said. You see, these spiritual pretenders who have come in, who've infiltrated them, it's not just that they're doing things that Scripture clearly forbids, but it's also that they're justifying and even advocating their actions toward other people. And maybe you know people like this. They try to get you to do things that are clearly wrong. And usually, oftentimes, the reason is so they don't feel so bad, right? If everyone's doing it, right, they can kind of desensitize themselves. Oh, well, everyone does that, or everyone watches that, or everyone fill in the blank. See, it's not just that their problem is with their behavior, but it's also with the things that they've spoken. See, Jude is worried. Jude is trying to unmask them. Here's the big picture of the story. Jude is trying to unmask them because they're coming in, and they are not just doing things 
and justifying their sin, but they're trying to pull other people in with them. They're trying to make excuses for their actions and advocate their behavior. He's coming to execute judgment. He's coming to convict them. Their deeds and also the things spoken against them. And not just some of their deeds. The text says all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed. Sometimes when we mess up and confess our sins, we have a tendency when we retell the story of what actually happened to make ourselves not sound so bad. Um, to leave out certain details. Uh, when we quote-unquote tell the truth and he says that he is coming to deal with them and not just some of their deeds, all the deeds. Okay, even the deeds that you think people can't see, right? Because you go into your browser history and make sure everything's cleaned up just in case the next guy that uses your computer uh, checks it out and wouldn't want him to see anything. All their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed. They're like, no evil action is exempted. There's nothing, nothing done that the wicked do that's ultimately going to be erased from God's database. All will be exposed, right? You can't outrun him. You can't hide from him. Like, he's going to get you. He will see, and it will come to light. All their deeds of ungodliness. In fact, this word ungodliness, it's kind of repetitive if you notice we'll look at verse 15 see how many times it's used here you see he says to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly that's once of all their deeds of ungodliness that's twice that they have committed in such an ungodly way that's three times and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him ungodly in the original language literally means uh, godless this is very descriptive of the spiritual pretenders here, hanging out, claiming to be Christians when they're not. They're just a joke. They're ungodly. They don't have a proper reverence for God. They don't love God. They don't care about God. They don't care about the people of God. It's a very, very fitting word to use. And then he jumps into verse 16. In verse 16, he's going to explain why this judgment is so deserved. He says, these are grumblers. These, the spiritual pretenders. These are grumblers. If you've read the Old Testament, you know how Israel grumbled all the time. We see that kind of picture drawn up. They grumble and they complain against the Lord. They're grumblers. Oh, by the way, they're also malcontents. They are people who are dissatisfied. So they're grumblers and they're malcontents. The people who are dissatisfied and because they're not satisfied, it says that they follow their own sinful desires. They follow their own sinful desires because they're not satisfied, right? They pursue pleasures by seeking to fulfill their own desires. They're pursuing pleasure in all the wrong places. And of course, herein lies the great problem with the world of which we know today. People come and sometimes ask, well, what type of church is Lynchburg City Church? What's, what's LCC like? Is it affiliated with any denomination? Uh, I tell people, what, what are you all about? If you could boil what you're all about at Lynchburg City Church down to a word, a phrase, what would you say? And I would say, at Lynchburg City Church, we are all about your happiness. That's what we're all about. 
Like my, my biggest concern is that you're happy. My number one priority, your happiness. It's a rather provocative thing for a pastor to say. Before you throw things at me or decide to storm out, give me a chance to clarify. We're all about your happiness in a world that says to find your happiness in everything and everyone other than Jesus Christ. We're all about you finding your happiness, your joy, your satisfaction in the resurrected Savior, our God and King. See, the world is constantly doing that. Satan is constantly attacking you in that way. Find your happiness in this relationship. That's a big one with young people, right? If only I had a boyfriend or girlfriend, I would be happy. Yeah, okay, I get that. Don't do it. <laughs> if only I uh, had this job or made this amount of money. Or make this amount of money after I make that amount much of money. If only I, I get that amount. And, and then get to that amount. And if only I have this house or this car until the newer version comes. Only I get this one or this one. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. I have this on my Instagram. It's a little picture too to go with it for you visual people. But it says this and I quote... Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Human history is a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And we're all wired to want to be happy. Blaise Pascal says that. We all have this innate desire. We make decisions to do things that bring us the most pleasure. The problem with us, the problem with the world, the problem with these bad dudes, the spiritual pretenders, it's not that their desires to be happy are too strong, it's their desires to be happy are too weak. Lewis says it like this, We are far too easily pleased. We're like kids playing in the ghetto, making mud pies. And we cannot imagine what it means to take a holiday out at sea. Say, hey, come on, seven day, seven night Mediterranean cruise. Here, have it. Right? Likens it to Jesus. They say, no, 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 I, I'm good. And they're in this mud and filth, and they say, I, I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not interested. So here at Lynchburg City Church, we're all about your happiness. We are Christian hedonists. I didn't make up the term. John Piper did. It's a very provocative term. That's so we're going to slap it on the back of t-shirts. <laughs> that should get some uh, conversations going. What's, what's that about? Let me, let me tell you what that's about. Because the world is looking to find their satisfaction, to find their happiness in everything other than Jesus. They're like chasing after the wind. And no matter how hard they try, they can't grab it. It slips through their fingers. Well, 
the spiritual pretenders, they're grumblers. They uh, grumble against the Lord. They complain against the Lord. They're malcontents. They're not satisfied. They're dissatisfied. And because they're dissatisfied, they just follow their own sinful pleasures. They follow the, the next thing that promises happiness. The, they follow the next thing that promises joy. And uh, they're not going to find it. They're not going to find it at all. And he says that they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They, they show favoritism. They're really good at telling people what they want to hear. And so they're gaining an advantage from this. Most likely financially. Keeping in context with what we learned last week in verse 11. Where they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Like Balaam, they say some things or they promise to say some things that the people want to hear. They prostitute themselves out just to make a buck. That's them. They show favoritism to gain an advantage. One commentator says, and tries to explain it a little bit deeper like this. He says, these people are expressing their teaching as to gain the support of the wealthier members of their community. Picking up on the Balaam charge in Jude 11, whether they had the authority to actually give judgments in their favor, we do not know. What it does look like is that Jude is accusing them of distorting the teaching of God. Christian ethics, to gain the financial support of members of the community who are listening to them. Thus, what the final charge here underlines is that in Jude's eyes, one of the reasons for some of their teaching is financial gain. And these type of people exist still today. Remember what Jude's trying to do. Writing this letter, calling upon the believers, calling them beating the, the, the drums, calling them to, to war, that they might be willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to unmask them so they're not misled, so they don't go along with them because they, they say really good things. They say really good things. And you imagine, I was thinking about this the other day. This isn't some 5,000 person megachurch who gets this letter. Okay? So when they're reading this letter, they're, when they're reading this letter, they're not thinking, man, I wish Jude would be more specific. I've got no idea who he's talking about right now. If only we knew. Don't know. Even if this letter circulated within other communities, these were small communities. You, you want to talk about awkward and uncomfortable? <laughs> this was awkward and uncomfortable. Like they're, they're reading this, and I imagine as they're reading this, they're like, don't make eye contact, it's going to be too obvious. They're talking about him. I mean, this is awkward and uncomfortable, right? But that's Jude's goal. Jude doesn't care about awkwardness or uncomfortability. Neither do I, for that matter. But, He's trying to unmask them. He wants them to know who these bad guys are. Who these spiritual phonies and pretenders and fakers are. Because they're dangerous. That's why he's writing the letter in the first place. And it happens today. And this is a call to spiritual discernment. I said it last week. Listen, I love Lifeway. 
But sometimes our, our, our criteria of spiritual discernment is, well, I'll only make sure I buy books from Lifeway. That's a terrible like, level of criteria. Like, I mean, there's, there's demonic things in that store. There are. And I don't just mean Christian literature. Okay, I, I would say music and movies and books. And we need to be mindful of it. People will say things that you want to hear that, that sound really good, that make for an exciting story or, or movie plot or twist. And people will pay a lot of money for it. Sounds like these guys. Now I read an article over the summer. I'm an army chaplain, for those of you who don't know. And I was on active duty for three months over the summer. Will you guys on break? I was out at Fort Knox. And uh, while I was there, I came across this article. Pastor, apparently he's a big shot pastor. I never heard of him. He's in the Atlanta-based area. Anybody from Atlanta here? Okay, maybe you guys have heard of him. This guy named Creflo Dollar. Some of you guys read the article. <laughs> apparently he, he's trying to raise some money. It's not a bad thing to raise money. I'm just going to be clear. I want to be really clear so you don't misunderstand me. But he's trying to raise some money. Needs $65 million. That's a lot of money. Once again, not a bad thing. Lots of money is not a bad thing. What are you going to do with it? Well, apparently, he wants to buy a jet. <laughs> Keep in mind, he already has a, a private jet, but he wants to buy... I can't make this stuff up. He wants to buy a Gulfstream G650, which apparently goes for $65 million. So my aviation people in here probably are like, oh, man, that's a nice jet. I actually Googled it and looked it up, and I was like, Whoa! That's a nice jet. <laughs> nice, nice jet. Yeah, nice jet. Yeah. So, like, he, he wants the $65 million because he needs the jet. He, he already has a jet, but he needs that jet. But it, don't worry because it's, it's ministry-related. He could not be reached by CNN uh, to respond to this. Now, I don't know this guy personally. I don't know him. But this is what I do know. The people in this story are not limited to the first century. I'm not saying this guy is in that category, though I'm a little concerned by this article that I hear. People ask me about it, I'm like, yeah, that concerns me a little. It's not a bad thing, I want to be clear, it's not a bad thing if someone in ministry makes money. That's, that's not a bad thing at all. Now, no one here at Lynchburg City Church gets paid, but that's not because we're trying to be more noble, it's because we're a young church plant, we can't afford it. And hopefully one day we can't afford to pay our leaders, 1 Timothy 5, it's a biblical thing to pay our leaders. We want to do that, um, but it's not bad to get paid or even to get paid well. But there are people who are like these people. There's a story, I think Ravi Zacharias tells it. I think so. Matt, you may know this story, but I, I, I just want to make sure. I think I heard it from him. There's a young man. He goes to an Ivy League school. He wants to get trained for the ministry. I think it's Princeton. And he's excited. He wants to go into the pastorate. His first semester in seminary. And uh, walking down the hallways with a classmate. We go to class. A couple weeks in, professor poses a question. He says, how many of you in here don't believe in God? Some of you know the story. I've told this when we were preaching through 1 Timothy. Half the class raises their hand, including this young man's friend and classmate sitting next to him. Now, you might expect that at a 
liberal arts school, but this is seminary. This is where you get trained for the pastorate. This is where you get trained for ministry. And the young man is, well, he's shaken. He tries to collect himself, and as they're leaving class that day, he, he pulls his friend aside and says, can I ask you a question? I noticed that when the professor asked that question, you, you raised your hand, and he said, well, yeah, that's true. He said, well, why are you here then? Why are you in seminary? And he said, well, because there's some really good money to be made in this goth business. Woe to them, because they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. They hoard themselves out to make a buck. They were loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They said really, really good things, probably sold a lot of really great copies of some book to make a book. Guys, we need to be spiritually discerning. You say, where are you going with this? I think that's what Judah's going with it, right? The whole story is he wants to unmask them. He wants them to know who these people are because he sees them as dangerous. Remember, he calls them hidden reefs back in verse 12. They're sneaky. They're dangerous. And we need to be discerning. We, we need to exercise a little bit more discernment when it comes to what we're watching. Just because it has a Christian label on it doesn't mean it's legit. Or what we're reading or what we're listening to. Say, well, how do I do that? Ask somebody who you think is more spiritually mature. Just start there. Ask them. Ask them what they think. It's okay to say, I don't know. Sometimes I call my friends up, my pastor buddies. I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of this? I don't know. They're like, oh, yes or no or maybe or whatever. I call and ask people all the time. Because I want to know. I want to be discerning. I don't want to be misled by people who are loudmouth boasters who just are really good at talking. So smooth, silver-tongued. We need to watch out. We need to be careful. We need to be mindful. And some of us, I'm not saying that you're a spiritual pretender because you share in, in certain things in common with these people. But what I am saying is that if you do, if you are malcontents, you're dissatisfied, you're just seeking your pleasure and your happiness... And you're looking for that next thing to bring you that contentment, that ultimate joy, which can only be found in Jesus. Then maybe you need to just have a conversation with the Lord right now and say, Help me to find my true happiness and joy in you. It's not wrong to enjoy the good gifts that God gives, but it definitely can become problematic when we look to those things more so than we look to the Lord. That's why I said we're all about your happiness in Jesus here. Because that's how Satan constantly attacks us. Find your happiness in this thing or this person. Be mindful of that. Exercise that level of discernment. And remember at the end of the day, he is coming to execute judgment. Bad news for the bad guys. Great news for us. He's coming back for us. And until that happens, be wise. Be discerning. Be, be like a Jude. Lord, we love you. And I pray that you would make us like your servant Jude.
that we would be wise, that we would be discerning, discerning, that we would not be like the spiritual pretenders who are constantly complaining and grumbling against you, that we would not be disinterested or discontent in you, that we wouldn't be looking to the next thing that brings us pleasure, or should I say promises to bring us pleasure, that we would truly see you as, as, as more beautiful and more breathtaking than anything else. That we wouldn't just look at you and see facts about you, but that we would see the beauty of those facts. And we are excited, God, that you are coming back. That is good news. In a week which was filled with not so great news, I'm thankful for that, Lord. We love you. Help us, God, to remember Jude's words tonight. Amen.